turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 15, please. Acts chapter 15. We're in our series through the book of Acts, a church on mission. And uh, we are entering into a very crucial time, a transition in the book of Acts. We really transition into that more so in chapter 13 and 14, where we're transitioning out of the Apostle Peter as kind of the main character. Now we're getting into the missionary, the Apostle Paul and his partner Barnabas. We talked about their missionary journey in chapter 13 and chapter 14. And now we're going to get into a very, very important part of Paul's ministry in chapter 15. I'm curious how many in here have ever been fooled by the fine print. You were offered a really good deal, but you forgot to read the fine print and you were surprised later by how many hidden fees there were. Some of you get mad right now, aren't you? There seems to be hidden fees about everywhere we go now. And I'm not saying that every hidden fee is, is dishonest to the customer. It's just in the fine print. So the customer has to pay closer attention to see it. Banks have hidden fees and hotels do and airlines do and Nail salons do and insurance companies and and eBay and Amazon hidden fees are are everywhere. It's part of life. That's why we got to be careful. Don't we on the front end to read the fine print? I want to preach a message today under this title grace, no hidden fees, grace, no fine print, no hidden fees. See in our text, there's a group of Jewish believers That had a really good deal when it came to salvation. And it was this. Salvation by grace. And we'd say amen to that. But they also had this written in the fine print. Circumcision required. Their theology of salvation contained some hidden fees. And let's be honest. It wasn't a fee that their non-Jewish male friends wanted to pay. It's not that these Jewish believers denied salvation by grace per se. They simply said salvation came by grace plus circumcision. See, to the Jews, circumcision wasn't just a matter of hygiene like it is today. It had a spiritual purpose. It was symbolic. It was an outward physical sign of the covenant between God and his chosen people. It was a big deal to them. Well, unfortunately, a group of Jewish believers who were passionate about this Ritual, this tradition of circumcision, was trying to sell their version of the gospel inside the church of Antioch. This was the church that sent Paul and Barnabas out on their missionary journey. And it upset it really upset the Apostle Paul. He started to argue with them about it, and it became so severe that other people had to get involved. And so they formed what we call today the Jerusalem Council in Jerusalem, a group of apostles and elders got together and they discussed and debated this theological disagreement so that they could bring back to the church of Antioch a solid decision and, 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 and theological doctrine, training and teaching and preaching so that they could stay unified. See, it's very interesting that, that when different people come to the same church, there's always room for disagreement, isn't there? I mean, you're talking about different backgrounds and different personalities and different family heritage and different economic status and different ethnicities. That just happens. And by the way, that's okay for a church that is on mission, helping people find and follow Jesus. Not everybody should look and talk and act and dress just like you. 
If that's the case, we better be concerned about whether we're really on mission or not. So here's the church of Antioch on mission. They got Jews. Now they're getting Gentiles and it's producing a little bit of disagreement. So here's, here's what we're going to discuss. We're going to discuss two headings in the text. Number one, the gospel defended. And number two, the fellowship preserved. The text is going to answer two questions. Question number one, can Gentiles be saved and become part of the people of God without keeping the law? Without paying the hidden fee? Today, can we be saved by grace apart from our good works? We're going to answer that question. Number two, how can Gentile believers fellowship with Jewish believers in the same church? They're so different. For us today, how can Christians fellowship with other Christians in their church who come from different backgrounds? Let's begin with this. The gospel defended. Here's the truth. All people can become saved and part of the family of God apart from good works. Okay, look at verse 27 of chapter 14. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there they abode long time with the disciples. Verse 1 of chapter 15. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through uh, Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were, were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Verse 27 of chapter 14 tells us that God was opening the door of faith to Gentiles. And that started to spark some theological controversy. Some Jewish believers didn't like the idea that the Gentiles were retaining their, their own identity as they joined the community of faith. In other words, they thought a Gentile needed to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Now, in all fairness to Jewish critics, they did raise a natural question. The first Christians were Jewish, right? Jesus was Jewish. The old covenant people were Jewish. And since Jews had always demanded that Gentile converts be circumcised in order to be accepted into their community, it was probably difficult for them to all of a sudden just change. I believe these Jewish Christians, past Pharisees, were Christians. They were struggling to bring themselves to give away centuries of distinctives that that had set their people apart from the world. So with good intentions, they were thrusting those distinctives and traditions onto their Gentile brothers. And so this posed great danger to the unity, unity of the church. In fact, I want you to get the weight of this. Because you might look at this and say, oh man, a theological lesson today. The Jerusalem Council, what are we going to learn from this? No, I want you to get this. The entire doctrine of salvation was at stake here. Do you know that history 
and experience have proven that anything made as a co-requirement with faith for salvation soon shoves faith aside and becomes the means of salvation. I contend that if the apostles had been passive about this new teaching entering the church, we'd be in trouble today. There would have soon been some type of Christian doctrine of salvation by circumcision. There would have eventually been the first church of the circumcision. That wouldn't have been good. This is very serious. Theologically, the truth of the gospel was at stake. That's why I'm so thankful that Paul and Barnabas stood up. Why they defended the gospel, why they formed this council. And so the council got together in Jerusalem. And I want you to know something very, very important. They didn't come to their conclusion based on an extra word of revelation by some prophet. They had some careful reasoning from the scripture. And then three men of God, three speeches from these men of God was what was recorded by Luke to defend the gospel of grace alone. One from Peter, one from Paul, and one from James. Let's start with Peter's speech. I hope you're ready to study the Bible today. Verse 6. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up. It's no shock that he's the first one that grabbed the mic, is it? And he said unto them, men and brethren... Ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. It should be no surprise, right, that Peter steps up and courageously alludes to the events that he had with Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10. We studied that. That took place, they say, about 10 years before Acts chapter 15. And what Peter shows us through his speech is that the real boundary marker between the lost and the saved is not circumcision. It's not outward conformity. It's faith. He said the Gentiles, like Cornelius, heard the word of God and believed. Therefore, God cleansed their hearts, not by circumcision, but by faith in Jesus alone. And then Peter just kind of preaches to him for a second. And he says, what are you doing placing a yoke on the neck of these Gentile converts. Now, what's a yoke? We don't speak in those terms very often. Well, a yoke was a frame or a a bar that can be placed on an animal pulling a heavy load. A yoke would have been heavy and uncomfortable. More than that, it meant bondage. It would imprison you by connecting uh, you without escape to whatever's attached. These Jewish Christians spent their entire lives hitched to the law of Moses. It was their yoke. They thought that they could please God through keeping those laws. And now they wanted to place that same yoke on the neck of the Gentiles. Well, Peter's warning them against that because Peter's mind is going back to Matthew chapter 11. When Jesus taught the disciples that I have a yoke too. And my yoke is easy. My yoke is light. Religion is burdensome. 
Religion is heavy, but I will take that yoke off and I'll give you the yoke of a relationship with me. It brings rest. Peter's making the point that these Jews shouldn't burden down the Gentiles by making their religious traditions a requirement. That was Peter's defense of the gospel. He's saying Jesus is the way to salvation, nothing more and nothing less. In fact, he went so far as to say, that's how we got saved. We didn't get saved because we were willing to get circumcised. We got saved because we were willing to reject Judaism and turn to Jesus. And they got saved the same way we got saved. After that, Paul spoke up. Look at verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul. And they declared or testified what miracles and wonders God had rung among the Gentiles or wrought among the Gentiles by them. So Paul stands up. We don't know what his testimony sounded like. We just know the theme of it. He testified as to what God did with him when they left the church of Antioch in Acts chapter 13 and 14 and, and, and went all the way through those, those, those places that had never heard the gospel before and, and how that many Jews got saved and many Gentiles got saved. He verified what Peter just said. God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. After they testified, James speaks up. Now, when James speaks up at the Jerusalem Council, I think everybody really listens. James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, the, the, the leader of the church. James, the moderator of this council. And so he stands up and he verifies what Peter just said. Look at verse 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, or Simon Peter, hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to agree, and to this agree, the words of the prophets. This is what David read to start the service today. As it is written, after this I will return and will will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore my sentence. In other words, he's saying, here's what we're landing on. Here's what we're settling today. Here's the judgment that we might not trouble them, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. You got to get this. You got to get this. You can appreciate what's going on here. James starts by saying something incredibly important. He says that God, watch here, is calling from out of the Gentiles, those who would be part of the people that would bear his name, part of the people of God. Don't miss how significant this is. Consider all the way back in Deuteronomy 14. Here's what God says. For thou art an holy people. He's talking to the Jews. An holy people. Unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. There are two categories of people in that verse. One is God's people, the Jews. Another is described as the nations, the non-Jews, the Gentiles. The Jewish people then found their core identity in being part of the chosen people of God. This is what set them apart from the nations around them. And this is why circumcision was such a big deal. Because it was the physical indicator that marked them as the chosen people. But what James just introduces to them is calculated to turn all their preconceptions inside out. 
He says that now God is calling out of the Gentiles a people for his name. In other words, anyone of any ethnicity can now be part of the people of God. And James goes even further. He quotes from the book of Isaiah. He quotes from the book of Amos. To the effect that God is rebuilding the house of David. And and the Gentiles will be included in the restored kingdom. They won't be ruled over by the people of God. They will be a part of the people of God. And so James said, hey. It's like he, he, he hammers the gavel. He says, I'm coming down with the decision. Here's my decision. Don't trouble the Gentiles with your Mosaic law, your circumcision, and your ritualistic rules. But rather, Gentiles understand this. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Meeting's over. Now I know today there probably isn't anyone in here who's struggling with trusting these same aspects of the Mosaic law or religious tradition for salvation. But, but sadly today, many adhere, sometimes without even realizing it, to a Jesus plus something else gospel. Jesus plus baptism. It might not be circumcision, but it's Jesus plus baptism. It's Jesus plus communion. It's Jesus plus church attendance. It's Jesus plus benevolence. But hear me, if we add anything to the gospel, we lose the gospel. Gospel math works like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross is totally sufficient to make you right with the Father. If you're here today, please hear me. And you're trusting in Jesus plus something to get to heaven. I need to tell you, you will not get to heaven. You will only get to heaven when you fully rely on Jesus and Jesus alone to take you there. I'm grieved today because many people, maybe even in our own congregation right now, are putting on a yoke of religion around their necks. Or maybe they're even allowing others, even their own family, to put a a yoke of religion around their necks. They're weighing themselves down or allowing themselves to be weighed down by others with this burden of having to keep a religious set of rules and customs and traditions or or, or keep attending this specific denomination or church. Many of them come by it honestly. They've just been raised that way. And so to take off that yoke doesn't just make them feel guilty internally. It might very well get them ostracized by their family. To you today, I would say, come to Jesus. I know it'll be hard. But the relief and rest you feel when he takes off the yoke of religion is amazing. He will take off the yoke that even your own family members have placed on you. Your own denomination has placed on you. Your own church has placed on you. And you will find rest when you trust in Jesus' work on the cross. You'll find rest when you trust Him for salvation. You will not find rest if you're trusting your good works. You will not find rest if you're trusting your religion. You will not find rest if you're trusting your family heritage. You'll go to bed every night wondering, have I done enough? That's not how God intended you to live. That is, that is a yoke that's heavy. God said, I want you just to trust in me and rest in the fact that I've done it all. To our church family today, I want to say this. Under this heading, we must share 
the theological convictions of these men who formed the Jerusalem Council. Hear me, the gospel of grace is something we must defend. It's something we must be willing to fight for. Now that doesn't mean the church ought to fight over everything, but we must be willing to fight when the gospel's at stake. And here's why. Because how a person gets saved really matters. Listen to reformer Martin Luther, who we don't agree with entirely, but he did a right thing. He wasn't fighting over the color of carpet. He wasn't fighting over the, the format of the bulletin. He wasn't fighting over the style of church music. He wasn't fighting over prophetic timelines when he nailed the list of grievances, grievances to the, the door of the Wittenberg church. He wasn't fighting over those things. He was risking his life over the gospel itself. The gospel is only one generation away from being lost. And if we don't fight for the purity of it in our generation, the next generation will not have it. See, I think an overly tolerant culture has produced Christians and churches who think Christ followers should never have a debate over even the most important theological matters. We're obsessed with tolerance and privacy. And I don't think that's right. I said, I don't think that's right. To be clear, I do think it's wrong to fight over everything. But it's equally wrong to not stand up for anything. And I desire to be the kind of church that will always defend the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, nothing more, nothing less, case dismissed, case over. We cannot wiggle away from that. By the way, when we fight over things lesser than the gospel that we shouldn't be fighting over, as a result, what we're doing is minimizing the gospel. So we can't be fighting over things that, that, that don't demand a fight because while we're making noise over those things, the gospel is being polluted. We've got to guard the gospel. We can't have our eyes on lesser battles and let Satan go and play with the gospel we got to have our eyes on the main battle while, while trying to sort out those things when we can. So the first question of the text is this. Can Gentiles be saved and become a part of the people apart from the law? Yes, they could. Can we be saved by grace apart from our good works? Yes, we can. But here's where the text turns. What happens when these Jewish believers and these Gentile believers meet next Sunday? They're both saved people. But can they really fellowship together in the same church with their differences in background and heritage? See, that's what our our text covers next. And here's why. Because the Jerusalem Council wasn't just concerned about defending the gospel. They were also concerned about preserving the fellowship. Because without a unified church, the gospel is not effective. Thus, the second question of the text. How do believers today fellowship with other church members when they're so different from each other? Here's the second heading, preserving the fellowship. And here's the truth. All believers can enjoy fellowship with each other despite their differences. So James, he came down with the sentence. And here's what he's going to do next. He's going to write a letter. That's how they, that's how they communicated back then. And he's going to send some people with that letter back to the church of Antioch where this conflict was happening. And in this letter, of course, he's going to tell them, don't Jews, don't trouble the Gentiles. They're saved by grace alone. But then he's going to spend a a, a big portion of the letter 
talking to the Gentiles. And he's going to say, Gentiles, I expect for the Jews to show you grace. But I also expect you to show the, the Jews grace. They're going to, they're, they shouldn't put their yoke of religious traditions on you. But hear me. You also shouldn't just live however you want and disregard what is important to them. So look at verse 22 through 29. Then pleased at the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas surnamed uh, Barsabbas and Silas, chief among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. Here's the letter. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren, which are the Gent- uh, of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And watch this verse 29. That ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. From which if ye keep yourselves ye shall do well. Fare ye well. So James says Gentiles. I, I, I am going to tell the Jews to stop troubling you. But I also want to tell you something important too. Don't trouble them. If you trouble them, then there will be no fellowship in the church. And he focuses on two ways that they can keep the fellowship and not trouble their fellow Jewish brothers. Here's the first way. He says, pursue personal holiness. That's what he says. He mentions idolatry and he mentions Immorality, sexual immorality. See, watch here. James knew that these Gentiles came from completely pagan backgrounds. They did not go to the synagogue. They did not have Old Testament context. They did not memorize the Torah. They were actually nicknamed heathens because they sinned so bad. So James wanted to be careful to not give the Gentiles the impression that being saved by grace alone meant license to continue to live any way they want. That's not grace, friend. Grace doesn't motivate you to sin. Grace motivates you to abstain from sin because of everything Jesus Christ has done for you. The Jewish believers would have been very sensitive to loose and immoral living. I mean, they grew up hearing more about keeping their hands clean than their hearts clean. Matthew 7. It was just in their DNA, these external, uh, this external belief, uh, belief and obedience. And so what James is saying is that the Gentile believers are going to need to be extra careful in their living, not just to please the Lord, which is most important, but also to not trouble the brothers they go to church with. And I want to say the same thing to every Christian here today. Hear me, please. Your lifestyle affects your fellowship and unity with other church members. You shouldn't live any way that you want to live and then expect your fellowship with other believers just to remain the same. How you live your life outside of these walls has a direct impact on your relationship inside of these walls. 
It's not fair of you to, to just go and live an immoral life Monday through Saturday and then come Sunday and expect everybody just to treat you like a great Christian. Yes, we should love you. We should receive you. We should pray for you. We should offer you grace. We shouldn't burden you down. We, we shouldn't condemn you. But at the same time, you shouldn't be entitled. If you're living an unholy life, you shouldn't feel comfortable in here. Are you hearing me? Not because we say mean things, not because we're judgmental people, but because God expects his people to live a holy life. And people who are trying their best to live a holy life that go to church with you and worship with you and serve with you and pray with you, they kind of want you to live a holy life too. And when you don't, that troubles them. It affects them. It shouldn't affect them to the point where they're judgmental and condescending or anything like this. But it's okay for that to affect them. They should care about you. Amen? And so he says, abstain from these things. Abstain from immorality. You know how serious the epistles were about sexual immorality? 1 Corinthians 5, Paul went so far as to say, there's a brother in our church who's having sexual immorality. He's a fornicator and he will not say, his, he will not say sorry. He will not turn his back on that. Doesn't matter how many meetings we have with him, he just keeps having uh, sexual intercourse in ways he shouldn't be having them. And he says, We've got to come to this conclusion. We've got to excommunicate this guy. I'm not making this stuff up. This is 1 Corinthians 5. And Paul explains why. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, he said. This brother's sin that is not repented of is affecting the entire church. And that's serious stuff. That doesn't mean that, that when somebody messes up, we just yank him behind the pulpit and make a spectacle out of him. That's not at all what it means. It doesn't mean we kick people out because they make mistakes. That's not at all what it means. But the Apostle Paul had went through the Matthew 18 procedure, meet with a brother by himself and then bring a couple others to meet with him and try to intervene in his life and pray in between those meetings and have a lot of patience and have a lot of grace and have a lot of forgiveness and be there for that brother when he's tempted and be there for that brother when he falls. But at the end of a long period of time, if he persists in his sin, that brother is no longer a brother. He shows no fruit of repentance. He's got to be out of the church because that affects the rest of the church. I know that ain't popular preaching today, but that is in the Bible. And it shows us something very, very important. How we live our lives affects the condition of the church, the health of the church, the fellowship of the church, the unity of the church. Somebody help me today. He said, abstain from idolatry. You understand when you put things before God on Sundays, that affects the fellowship of the believers. You understand when God gets your leftovers financially, that should, that might affect the fellowship with the believers. You understand when you live your life as an adulterer all week long, propping God, propping things in your life up uh, above God, then that is going to affect the unity of the church. That's sin church. That's sin. Live holy lives. Yes, you're saved by grace alone, but that's not a license just to do whatever you want. Number two. Here's how you preserve the fellowship. Avoid unnecessary offenses. Avoid unnecessary offenses. James tells the Gentiles, don't partake of meat that has been strangled or has blood in it. Now, what is that all about? Well, they couldn't eat their their meat rare. They had to eat it well done, which is just tragic. Who eats their steak well done? Weird people do. 
weird people, like my dad. <clears throat> James, what he's doing is he's pointing back to Leviticus 17, where they have these dietary laws. And the Jews were forbidden to eat animals who were strangled or killed without having the blood drained from them. That's, that's the summary of it. That was a big deal to the Jews. Okay, and while James isn't telling the Gentiles that they should abstain from eating meat like this in order to be saved. He is appealing to them to abstain from this kind of meat as a concession to the conscience of the Jewish converts who still regarded such food as unlawful in the eyes of God. See, here's the point. You've got to get this. If you've been saved by grace, and I hope you have, you need to learn how to display grace to other people. Grace is a two-way street. You receive it and you give it. And that happens oftentimes by abstaining from things that aren't inherently sinful, but might be offensive to the conscience of those you worship with. I weary of Christians that say, I'm under grace. I can just kind of do what I want. I've got liberty in Christ. And you treat that with irresponsibility. Listen, just because you can doesn't mean you always should. Romans 14 speaks of this. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. Praise God for that. Eat a good steak. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be greed with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably? Paul said, destroy not him with thy meat. Christ died for him. Don't destroy him because you can do something. And then later he says this, it is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine. Nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. For the sake of unity, think about others before doing what you do. Think about how it affects them. Think about the possibility of offending them. Think about how it might tempt them or cause them to stumble in their own spiritual life. Hear me, the same grace that saved you is the same grace that enables you to sacrifice what you could do for what you should do. If you're part of a church... You've committed to a body of Christ and you never abstain from something for the sake of the testimony or the unity of your church. That's not a good thing. There should clearly be some things that you say no to. Not because you have to, but because you should. Understanding that it might cause somebody to stumble. Understanding that it might cause the gospel not to look so attractive. Understanding that there are people with more sensitive consciences that you worship with every week. And they could really get tripped up by something like that. That's the burden of the Jerusalem council for the church at Antioch. They want the Jews to show the grace to the Gentiles by not troubling them with their religious traditions. While at the same time, they want the Gentiles to show grace to the Jews in abstaining from certain things that would offend them. In this statement, here's what we learn. You can write it down, take it home with you this week and think about it. God's grace can save anyone and bring together everyone. You're like, man, why didn't you just say that? Our message would have been a lot shorter. (laughs) It's not my job. 
It's not my job. My job is to teach the word. But that is a summary of it right there. God's grace can save anyone and bring together everyone. I want Fellowship Baptist Church to always be a place of grace. A place where anybody's welcome. Because we believe God's grace can save anyone. A place where people are saved by grace alone. Not a place where, where people feel like they got to have their act together before they come to Jesus. Not a place where, where, where people feel like they got to dress a certain way, talk a certain way, and act a certain way before they put their faith in Christ. I don't want us to be a church that sends that off. But I also want us to be a place where that same grace is displayed one toward another week after week after week. Where we've got church members that are considerate of one another's differences. We think about others before we do and say certain things or post certain things. A place where Christians recognize that not everyone has to be just the same to be in unity and fulfill the mission that God has given to us. The text closes with a a, a really simple observation. But when the church of Antioch got the letter, Luke records that this this emotion, it changed their disposition. It says they, they had joy when they read that. Now watch here and I'm done. That makes sense, right? The Jews were putting a yoke on the Gentiles. When you have a yoke on your back, you're not smiling. You're grinning. You're enduring. It's heavy. But when that letter came back, it's like it took the yoke off of those Gentiles. I'm like, whew, I did not want to get circumcised. I was about to get up and leave this church. Praise God. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm going to smile and just start singing right now. They were relieved. You know why? Because grace brings joy, not strife. When people came into the church and they were ungracious, that's how the the chapter started. They were ungracious, there was strife. When the church got grace, there was joy. Let's be a place of grace. Stand to your feet.